Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome to the Middle East political science podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by Magid Bandor, the author of the brand new book, Egypt Under a Sisi, A Nation on the Edge, which was published by IB Taurus Press. Uh, Magid, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for uh, having me. It's a pleasure. It, so it, it's really it's really good to read a book like this. Uh, this is the, roughly the 10-year anniversary of a CC coming to power. And there haven't been, I think, enough of these kind of like really, you know, taking a step back and getting the long view on what this regime actually is. So why don't we start by having you just tell us a little bit about the origins of the book, why you chose to write it, and what you see as the main contribution. Um, well, I've been writing about the regime basically since uh, August 2013, and somehow without really thinking about it, I've been trying to write the book for 10 years. Um, so it's basically the uh, product of uh, the past decades of research and, and looking at what the regime is uh, basically uh, doing. Um, and I would say the basis of the uh, of of the uh, argument here is that this regime is fundamentally um, different than uh, uh, anything that we've seen before. Um, I'm basically trying to show that for the first time, uh, basically since um, 1952, um, the regime now is a full-on military dictatorship where um, the military is ruling directly. Um, and that from where I'm sitting is something um, uh, completely new. Um, so before that, I would I would I would say that there was always a civilian a component, a civilian a counterpart. The military was always a dominant force or a rather important one, but now it is the force. It is the only uh, dominant force. So what we're witnessing now, uh, ten years in, is something new, um, something that we haven't seen before. And CC has basically uh, performed or or uh, did a um, revolution from uh, above, basically. So it is a. a, a um, revolutionary change, but just not the way that people expected things to be in 2011. He is in 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 many ways the um, uh, the uh, uh, antithesis um, of uh, the um, revolution or um, the January uh, uprising. Now, the book really uh, goes through a number of sectors, political economy, uh, uh, civilian institutions, a whole range of issues where you try and make this case. But let's take a step back uh, before we get to the details of it and talk about this, what you call this a top-down process of radical change. And I think one of the key takeaways of this is that people who think that this is simply a restored Mubarak regime um, are really misunderstanding what's happening inside of Egypt. Walk us through this a little bit in terms of the main things which really differentiate this regime and make you think it's something new. Um, exactly. So uh, I would say that the main thing that we can see, which 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 you can view actually quite clearly, is that this regime does not have a civilian wing. It uh, it does not have a mass ruling party somehow. Um, and that's something uh, completely new. So for the first time, we can see the military 
penetrating the state completely, um, uh, militarizing it, and it had what is very clear to me a very clear goal, which which is to eliminate any competing center of civilian power. And by um, uh, any, I mean any, like it doesn't matter if you're even a, 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 a friendly pro-regime civilian, um, it doesn't mean that you will, uh, that you will somehow be uh, allowed to uh, accumulate any sort of a, a political power or reach a position within um the state that is that is really of significance really um so what we're witnessing now is the complete militarization of the state which then the regime used in a way to uh transform uh, egyptian um uh capitalism into this uh, into this significantly uh militarized form which in the end led to a crisis that I think the country hasn't seen in 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 decades, that is uh, unfolding now. Um, so all of this is completely new. All of this is very radical. All of this is uh, also top down with very limited uh, popular uh, participation. Now. In, in order to make the argument that this is something fundamentally new, you're also, you know, offering a theoretical reading of what Egypt was like before LCC. Um, so, and and in early in the book, you trace this through uh, from Nasser to Sadat to Mubarak. Um, tell us a little bit about how you think about the nature of the Egyptian regime and the Egyptian state as it develops over time. So basically, what I try to show is that from 1952, the military was an important uh, political force, but it never really ruled um, directly. So I tried to classify things depending on, uh, let's say, the uh, era. So during um, the Nasser period, um, the military was very uh, dominant, but there was a competition between the military and the uh, presidency. So um, uh, power was not fully uh, consolidated yet. And uh, and uh, even though the military ruled, there was a civilian cloak, um, which is some sort of a mass party that, uh, that, um, that um, the military could somehow rule behind and sometimes compete uh, against. After um 1967 the power of the military started to um dramatically wane um as the power of the military um uh decreased uh, it became clear now that the regime was moving away from this military dominance towards higher reliance on uh, the um, uh, internal uh, security uh, establishment, which is basically the uh, uh, police force also to balance out the uh, uh, military. And then as we move into the 80s and um, um, the 90s, the political role of the military gets dramatically less, but in exchange there, uh, economic position becomes stronger and they are able to um, uh, infiltrate the uh, state uh, 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 even uh, deeper. And then we fast forward to 2011 uh, uh, where, where we can see the civilian component 
of the regime somehow outweighing um, the uh, military, and that's one of the reasons of the success of the of the uh, uh, of the uh, uh, protest, which is this fragmentation there. Um, then afterwards, and uh, when uh, Sisi now uh, uh, comes in, this trend is completely reversed, and the military takes power, and it consolidates it in a way that we haven't seen before. So there is no civilian counterpart at all. Um, repression is extremely um, uh, intense, and it's and it's something new. Um, qualitatively and uh, quantitatively, um, and it becomes this military dictatorship where the military becomes the core as well as the dominant power within the uh, regime, uh, even weakening the position of Sisi himself um, in a way that hasn't happened before. Um, that's, that's, that's where I'm sitting. It's something completely new and uh, very uh, radical. Now, before we get into the the details of the nature of this new regime, can we talk a little bit more about 2011 and the revolution itself and kind of what do you assess that the military was doing during the 18 days? Uh, what, 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 what did they think was happening and what was their strategy um, during that transitional period before they take power in 2013? I don't think they had a very clear strategy, really. Um, I think that what happened surprised uh, everyone, but the military was in a position to capitalize the most. Um, it uh, dominated um, the state. In the beginning, at least, it had wide popular uh, appeal. And the Brotherhood um, was in the mindset that it's better to cooperate rather than to uh, clash uh, directly with um, the military. So this kind of, let's say, understanding developed. I wouldn't call it an uh, alliance in um, the traditional sense that it's better to um, keep the process of change on the uh, conservative track. And then it became clear that the military can actually capitalize on uh, on the 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 uh, on the um, disturbances, uh, the incompetence of the uh, Brotherhood, um, the failures of uh, the secular uh, opposition, and basically return in 2013 in a tidal wave of um, uh, a popular um, support to basically unleash repression that we have never seen before, and to use that repression to to rebuild this political system uh, in a very new way where the military becomes the dominant power and that becomes accepted. Uh, before that, that 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 really wasn't the case. Um, so it was a combination of 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 uh, factors that worked together, but it's very hard to think that they really had a plan from the beginning that would lead to that because there were so many variables. And there were so many, let's say, missed uh, opportunities if the civilian forces were, were, let's say, had the understanding that that the greatest threat to them was the military and would have been able to kind of bridge the differences, um, this would not have been uh, a possibility. The military was only able... It didn't have to happen. To take over. Exactly. It was this combination of... 
uh, the Brotherhood's uh, incompetence, uh, as well as kind of very clumsy, foolish uh, attempt at uh, uh, monopolizing uh, uh, power, uh, the seculars' uh, uh, opposition as well was extremely foolish um, and very disdainful of the uh, of the uh, Brotherhood. There's kind of also a class uh, component there. Um, so it's a, it's it's really a failure across the board that opened up a way for the military to come back. But it wasn't really the only path forward. There were other paths forward, uh, but the maturity wasn't there, the long-term thinking wasn't there, and the understanding that the military is the most dangerous political force in the country also was not there. Well, let's go to the core of the book now. And I want to start with um, your discussion of the legitimation of this new regime. I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the book where you really make an argument about the constitutive role of violence and polarization as kind of a necessary condition for this particular regime. So tell us a little bit about how the CC regime has managed to legitimize and justify for the public the kind of military regime which it's which it has produced. So what I'm trying to to show in the book is that the regime kind of resurrected a form of um, what I call a uh, sissified version of uh, of um, uh, Nasserism, where there is this view that the Egyptian nation is this one, um, let's say. Uh, um, uh, organic whole, there is this sameness and any differences, opposition to this idea of of, of the sameness is somehow considered uh, um, um, uh, treasonous. And the military becomes the guardian of the nation and the guardian of the state. Um, so somehow um, Sisi was able to use this or, or to revive this idea which he did not create himself but it's very deeply rooted um to to whip up this idea of a mass hysteria and that the brotherhood are 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 some sort of a, a terrorist uh, uh organization part of a massive conspiracy to bring down the state um and this logic was very easily expandable into um, uh, the secular uh, opposition. Uh, and he used that to whip up this frenzy of violence. And in the process, he didn't just do it himself, but he was able to mobilize the public for it as well. So it became a public spectacle of, of uh, 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 violence with mass popular participation. Um, so he was able to create this very strong psychological bond between him and his uh, support base through this participation in this mass violence and in this mass uh, bloodletting. Um, so violence became a very integral part of the regime and the regime uh, uh, popularity is there because of it, not in spite of it. Uh, basically, um, so it's it's it it is a part of the ideological edifice of the of the 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 uh, uh, regime. Um, so it's 
something that made repression endemic, widespread, and very hard to moderate. Uh, even if even if Sisi would like to do that, it's almost impossible for for uh, 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 to do. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point that you make. That in a sense, he's captured by his own rhetoric. And but it really is an interesting system that you're describing, right? Where you have, as you again, you you call it the top-down process of radical change, and yet you do show that it manages to cultivate this kind of mass support, which one might not expect for this kind of authoritarian regime. Uh, absolutely. So uh, even though it is not a democratic regime in any way, shape, or form. And popular uh, participation is almost non-existent, right? So there are no democratic means for uh, participation, but he is able to mobilize the public in spite of the lack of 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 uh, 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 participation. So um, in a way, he has this delegation mentality, which is you basically go to the streets and you give me what uh, what. The, he calls tafuid, uh, which is this delegation, and then you can do whatever you want. That's 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 his logic, basically, of uh, of a, um, a mandate, and it worked really, really, really well, especially in the beginning, especially when that when the hysteria was basically at its 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 uh, peak. There was widespread fear that the state is going to collapse, and then Egypt will become something like Syria. Um, so. The military was seen as a bulwark against all of that. And what is worth mentioning as well is that when the revolution happened, a large segment of uh, of the uh, uh, populace realized that we're not all the same, that Egypt has Shia, Baha'is, uh and uh a gay uh, community etc etc and that there are minorities everywhere and that was very hard for many conservative people to actually accept um so it's not just the repression of the brotherhood but it is the repression of the other of the minorities anybody that is moving against this idea of this organic unity, and that's entrenched uh, and very, very, very deep. Um, and the rhetoric there is shared as well by the uh, opposition. So it's really hard to root out. Um, so it's 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 a very uh, interesting uh, 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 dynamic that CC was able to tap into. And one of the things you point out, and this is something which others have written about as well, is that the the main areas where you do see actual manifestations of dissent are around things that tap into these discourses of nationalism, like uh, the Tehran and Sanafir, for example. Uh, exactly. So those are the areas where the regime, for example, fails to follow um, its own rhetoric, and then it really becomes so jarring that there is popular uh, mobilization. But for example, heavy repression torture nothing um almost nothing happens really uh people are aware of it but there is no strong opposition against it because there is this view that it is necessary and somehow the people that are subjected to that deserve it but when you are selling or you're um 
basically uh, transferring to uh, uh, islands. That's the point where the opposition manifests uh, 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 itself, even within the regime. So we could see a judicial battle uh, against the the um, uh, uh, the uh, transfer, which arguably the regime lost, uh, but somehow they still went through with it. Uh, but it's and within the military um uh, establishment you uh, could see uh, like uh, ex military uh, uh, generals voicing their uh, um public um uh, opposition to it but that's something new um so it would be just related to things like this uh, but it is within this very heavy discourse of nationalism, land, uh, and 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 it's extremely uh, chauvinistic as well. well. One last question about the illegitimation. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about how the CC regime and its kind of propagandists, how are they remembering January twenty fifth and June thirtieth, for that matter? Where does that fit into their into their legitimation? Well, they have a very perplexed relationship uh, with January 25th specifically. So in the beginning, it was praised as um, something good. But then as the years passed, it it became the source of all evil. Um, so the crisis now, for example, the, the uh, debt uh, crisis is now being blamed on a fictitious, I think he said 400 billion or 450 billion US dollars lost on January 25th, uh, which is a figure that is complete fiction. Um, so it's seen as something that should not be repeated and it's the source of all the troubles that happened afterwards. Um, so it, it, it appears from the rhetoric that the regime's sole reason for, uh, it, for uh, existence in the way that in the form that it has at the moment is to make sure that what happened in 2011 never happens again. Uh, and the 30th of June, of course, is seen as something extremely positive and that it was a correction of the mistakes that happened uh, two years before. Great. We're, we're speaking with Magid Noor about his book, Egypt, uh, Egypt Under Al-Sisi. Um, we'll be back in a moment. We're back with Magid Bandor uh, to talk about Egypt under Assisi, and we've been speaking about legitimation, but there's a lot more to what you see or what you argue that Assisi has done than simply legitimation. Let's talk about the political economy of all of this and kind of the militarization of that economy and the role that that plays in this new regime you're describing. So... Um... That's basically the kind of the most important uh, changes that the regime has uh, basically done, which I think will have very long term uh, uh, consequences. Uh, so using the military's uh, 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 political dominance, uh, the regime was basically able to transform the way that the economy works. So um, CC somehow decided to go on a, on a borrowing spree um, starting roughly around 2016 uh, after a 12 
billion uh, loan from the uh, IMF um, to, uh, to 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 start those uh, mega uh, infrastructure uh, uh, projects. Um, he was already doing that before, but from 2016 uh, onwards, it just took a completely new uh, dimensions. Um, the difficulty with this policy is that the projects that he initiated don't have a clear uh, economic return. Um, so he basically borrowed a lot of money, um, and it became clear now that the projects that he built are not productive, um, are not increasing the uh, competitiveness of the uh, economy, uh, which placed him in a very difficult position once he could not roll over the debt um, and he could not borrow more to basically pay for what he needed to uh, to um, uh, uh, pay for. But the reason that he did that was also to uh, to uh, entrench the military into the uh, economy and to uh, in, and to um, uh, enrich his base. The problem with that is that once this was done, this is extremely difficult to reverse uh, because, as I said, there is no civilian party. There is no power base that he can rely to to actually do the reforms needed to move beyond the crisis now. So uh, Egypt is now uh, undergoing something very dramatic, basically almost a financial uh, meltdown. Um, it's very close to uh, a default. Probably won't happen, but it's not impossible. Um, so the regime is under uh, uh, extreme uh, pressure. The difficulty here as well is that this is all being transferred to the poor and to uh, the middle class. So I think from 2016 till 2018, 2019, 5 million people dropped below the poverty line. And it is expected that this number will be much more in uh, the next few years. Um, so he's created this monster that he will not be able to control and he will not be able to uh, reign uh, uh, in. And all of this is also connected to this idea that he will that he will return Egypt to some sort of a former glory um, and that he will rejuvenate um, uh, uh, the nation. Um, so it's basically a massive mess. Yeah, indeed. Um, let's go back to that a little bit and the types of investments that CC is doing, because it really is quite interesting. Um, the uh, These mega projects that you're talking about, things like the new administrative capital, Suez Canal expansion. What kinds of things is he doing and how does that help the interests of the military? So, uh, as you said, he is building new uh, cities, building roads, uh, the... Uh, military as well has uh, expanded into uh, different sectors, sometimes with uh, disastrous uh, uh, consequences. Um, so the way that it works is that they would have this project and then the military would uh, either implement it itself or it would manage its its uh, uh, implementation. And then it would basically uh, pocket either the profits, um, the commissions, um, with no civilian uh, oversight whatsoever. Uh, and the added difficulty is that they don't pay any taxation either. So nobody really knows the size of the military's uh, footprint, but what is 
but what is very clear is that they have direct control of the, of economic policy, um, and that's something new. Um, so they've used this massive debt uh, inflow to uh, enrich themselves, uh, establish the uh, the the, the um, military's economic uh, dominance, and uh, control over the uh, over the uh, economy in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, all of this is happening as the private sector continues to suffer, continues to uh, to 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 uh, shrink, uh, and all of this is tied into the regime's repression, control of the state, and this chauvinistic national rhetoric of of the military's um, supremacy, Egyptian uh, nationalism that we've uh, covered uh, before. So it's yeah. all connected into one holistic autocratic system. And you mentioned something interesting that uh, they were able to actually attract these uh, short-term loans, which have now come back to really bite them. Yes, correct. Uh, so um, that's also one of the fallacies here um, is that they didn't even attract loans that are long term with low uh, interest rates. They were short term with higher uh, uh, interest rates. At some point, I think uh, Egypt was labeled darling of the emerging uh, markets uh, because they were just offering such high uh, interest rates. So they were extremely profitable. Um and things were managed in a way where, as I said, billions were borrowed with no feasibility studies, which which CC actually um, uh, openly said um, that he doesn't do feasibility studies. And I have no idea why is he proud of that. Um, so those billions were spent on those mass projects with no real economic returns. Um, the competitiveness of the uh, economy did not um, uh, improve. And then the war in Ukraine happened, and that led to the uh, outflow of, 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 I think, over $20 billion, uh, basically uh, overnight, which they then they realized that they are in deep trouble. And without a, uh, uh, outside financial um, support, um, they will not be able to 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 to, to um, survive, and that's Basically, getting worse. Or, war in Gaza and the shutdowns of Red Sea shipping that's impacting absolutely revenues. Exactly, exactly. So, um, what is now surprising is that the Gulf seems to be unwilling to help. Uh, there, they uh, ask for a number of reforms, including the demilitarization uh, of the uh, economy. A change at the helm of uh, the people running uh, economic uh, policy, and that's not clear for me. Who are they referring to? Because if they're referring to the civilian government, we both know that they're not really doing much. Um, so it seems that they were gunning for the military's role. Of course, that's very difficult to do. It's basically like you know, asking a penguin to fly. It's really, really, really hard. Um, so the Gulf seems to be unwilling to uh, support this. Um, so now they have, um, they went back to the IMF uh, and the negotiations are uh, ongoing and they seem to be on the road to increasing the value of the loan that they've received, I think at the uh, end of 2022. The original value was 3 billion. 
which is very little, but the idea now, I think I've heard the figure that it will uh, increase by seven. Some people say 10, some people say 12, but it is to stop Egypt from defaulting, but it won't solve the problem. Uh, the the problem is there. It is uh, structural, uh, systematic, and um, and it won't be solved by one loan. And then, meanwhile, as you said a moment ago, this is really you know predictably uh, you know manifesting in severe hardship for the Egyptian people. The, the wiping out of the middle class, the rise of poverty, and all of these sorts of things. And so, you know. In a sense, maybe we can talk a little bit about whether and how this turns into the kind of dissent which might actually challenge the CC regime ultimately. Um, yes, that's a very good question because even because even though the situation is bad, getting worse and worse and worse and worse, dissent is also extremely difficult at the moment. Not just because the regime is extremely repressive, but because the regime has completely decimated all forms of uh, uh, of um, uh, opposition. So even if there is dissent, the question now, what do you do with it? So, so even if there is an eruption of mass uh, protest, there is no political force on the ground that is able to organize this, to mobilize people, to even negotiate with the uh, regime. And and considering the regime's brutal, violent uh, uh, tendencies, the most likely scenario is that he will respond to any form of uh, dissent with basically mass repression on a scale that we haven't seen before. Um, so this, this for me personally is a horrifying thing to see. Um, but I cannot imagine a way where dissent can be channeled in a, in a way that would avoid a scenario where, where, where there would be such mass repression, unless it is something that is, that is extremely long-term and not something that will happen in the immediate future. Uh, meaning it will be through smaller political concessions over time accumulated through 5, 10, 15, 20 um, uh, uh, years. And then we can see some sort of organized political uh, opposition that might make an appearance, that might push for change without a mass uh, upheaval. But the regime's model somehow has placed it in a very brittle position. Um, it's very difficult for him to deal with uh, dissent without uh, uh, repression, even if he wants to, because he does not have a civilian apparatus in place that is able to uh, absorb slash negotiate any form of, of uh, 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 dissent. So somehow his success has led to his failure now he's 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 really stuck in a corner yeah that really comes through clearly in the book it's one of the really interesting arguments there is how this seemingly undefiable regime is actually quite brittle in many ways uh exactly uh because even if we think about the scenario of self reform for example um even if CEC wakes up in the morning and says, okay, this has been a very poor policy choice over the past um, 10 years, now is the time to change it. 
how is he going to negotiate with his own heavily militarized base that is now completely entrenched in the state and in the uh, economy? It's it's really almost impossible. So it makes the idea of self-reform almost a fable. Like if we look at the regime's response to the uh, to the IMF um, uh, um, uh, demands in 2022, uh, they were requesting basically uh, a, a privatization uh, a program, which the regime said it would actually it would uh, implement, but until now, not much has gone that way. You can make the 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 uh, argument that there are no buyers, and that's probably true. Um, the second one was basically a change in the reporting for um, the public sector, including the uh, military-owned uh, uh, enterprises, in a way that would uh, allow them, like that would allow the public to see the profits, losses, and how those companies are being uh, managed. The third is the end of the tax uh, exemptions that those uh, that that um, uh, the military uh, enjoys. At this moment, basically none of this has happened, even though they're going through a dramatic, crisis that they haven't that that the country hasn't seen in a very long time uh and the same demands were made by the gulf who would have been the main buyers of um the uh, the uh, uh, the um uh, egyptian uh, public sector companies again no changes so the idea that somehow the regime is going to self reform is for me, very hard to believe. It's also important to remember that even though Sisi uh, operates as if he, uh, as if it's a one-man show, in reality, I don't think that that's entirely true. Um, it is he still has to negotiate with his base, which in this case is the military. Um, so it's very hard to see a scenario where the regime would be able to self reform itself out of the mess that it has fallen into. And let's let's expand on that a little bit, because one of the key things that you argue in the book is that, you know, yes, you're talking about the military, but you're also talking about the militarization of many of the civilian institutions. Correct. So the military um, uh, establishment now has basically spread its tentacles everywhere so they're in the public sector they're in the local government they're in different uh, 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 ministries so even if reform is is there and somebody is somehow trying to uh, implement it demilitarizing the state and removing all of that is extremely difficult it is not an easy task and there will be some very stiff resistance from the state itself from inside the the bureaucratic apparatus of the state which means that any real effort of reform would require a restructuring of the state a restructuring of the constitution as well because that was a uh, change in 2019 um, and that gave the military basically, I, I think it was uh, Article 200, it 
gave the military the right to intervene uh, if to uh, protect uh, the uh, secular nature of the state and uh, uh, democratic rights, which is kind of a really bad joke there. Uh, so, so it's not just simply that he will reform. This this reform would be an immense effort, even if it comes at a very slow pace, even if it. Uh, it it it's a revolutionary rapid reform, but a restructuring of the state, a rewriting of the constitution, a change of a number of laws that grant the military um, uh, immunities, protections, all of that needs to be changed. So um, the effort is immense. And over the past 10 years, the regime has followed one consistent policy throughout to make sure that the military accumulate as much power as possible in all aspects. So reversing that is not something simple. So even if the even if CC wakes up in the morning and says, "I don't want to do this anymore. I'm gonna resign," um, this does not change the nature and the core of the regime, which is an outright military dictatorship. And reversing that is not a simple task. It will require immense effort and um, a long time. So that's also something to keep in mind, uh, which all of those are are substantial barriers to the idea of uh, elite-led reform. Um, I don't think that that's something feasible to think or to um, imagine. This goes beyond uh, the scope of your book, but I wonder if we could talk a little bit about uh, the war in Gaza and how that impacts Egypt, because obviously, you know, the Egypt is administers the border with Gaza. There's uh, the the fear of uh, mass displacement of refugees. You've got the Houthi attacks shutting down Red Sea shipping. Can you give us any sense of how Egypt under Sisi is navigating this international situation and whether that might lead to any change in its uh, kind of international positioning? So Sisi is in a very tight spot again uh, because uh, the idea of accepting Palestinian refugees into the country is a is a big no-no. Um, and um, a part of that is the regime's rhetoric 10 years ago. So when Sisi first came to power, he came under the idea that the Brotherhood is this uh, treasonous uh, group and that Hamas is an extension of them and that somehow there was a plot to sell Sinai to... Uh, Hamas and the Palestinians for $8 billion. Uh, So if the regime now moves and says, okay, we're going to allow the transfer of, of, I don't know, a million Palestinians into the country, that would have massive ideological um, repercussions for the regime. At the same time, Sisi or the regime is very closely allied with the uh, Israelis, but at the same time, they don't want to see Hamas completely gone because it's a partner that they could actually work with, even though in the beginning their relationship was actually quite uh, strained um, and Hamas was heavily vilified and they were even uh, accused of attacking uh, a police uh, station uh, in 2011, which is, of course, a fabrication. 
the relationship improved over the years. So there's a partner there that they can actually work with. But if Hamas is gone, which is the Israeli goal, which is kind of not really, uh, let's say, realistic, then who are they going to talk to? Um, so Sisi is in a very difficult spot um, and he's finding it difficult to navigate between the demands made uh, by the Israelis and the uh, domestic uh, pressures. Um, at the same time, there is the navigation into the Red Sea and the latest that I've heard or um, that I've read is that now the Suez uh, Canal is very severely hit. Uh, uh, monthly, the uh, uh, income was around $700 million. Uh, now it's down to $100 million. And that's in the middle of a very intense, hard currency shortage. Um, just to kind of explain to um, the listeners, the pound is trading uh, at an official exchange rate of 1 to 30.9 in the black market or the parallel uh, market now it's hovering, I think, around 60. Um, last week it was, I think, over 70. Uh, two days ago it dropped to 53 because it seems that the regime intervened somehow and they made a weird propaganda uh, uh, campaign that the regime is going to receive 22 billion from the uh, Emiratis for the sale of. Uh, a resort area in the north coast, which in the end appears to be a, a fabrication. So they're in a very tough spot, um, and basically they, they they're they're not really managing they're not really managing it particularly well. So they are maintaining um, the blockade still from from the uh, Egyptian side. So they're not really trying to break that, and they're not allowing any. Uh, Palestinians in, including the wounded, only a very limited uh, 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 number. And there is even some news that the Palestinians are paying thousands to be able to cross the border to uh, uh, Egyptian security uh, um, uh, uh, like um, the border control. So it's, 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 it's basically a complete mess. Uh, but it seems that it has kind of spurred um, the international community and the uh, Americans mostly to kind of give the IMF a push. Okay, we're going to give you the loan now, uh, which 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 has been stalling for quite a bit. So it seems to have worked at least a little bit to provide some relief and to make sure that uh, the regime does not at least default. Great. One last question then. Um, you know, so I, as we were talking about before we began the podcast, I think this was a really good time to have a book like this 10 years after the regime, after the regime came into power, it's enough time to really see what it actually is and maybe kind of push back against some of the initial um, judgments and, uh, and conclusions. So what, what kind of book do you think we'll be writing about Egypt in another 10 years? Uh, it's a very good question, and it's very hard to answer. <laughs> um, well, uh, hopefully, I'm hoping that it would be a book talking about the change that happened in year 11, <laughs> mm -hmm, if, if, mm -hmm. it's, if, it's, if it's feasible. But realistically speaking, it will be something looking at the longevity of this regime and how it was able to stay in power for so long and 
in spite of its complete disastrous policies because now where i'm sitting this is kind this might be the beginning of a change because all of the regime's promises have now proved beyond a shadow of a doubt to be false but it's a question of his ability to maintain his hold on the minds of his support base which remains substantial so uh i am not under any um delusions that it's not a popular regime mm -hmm. i don't think it is as popular as it was in 2013 for sure this has dwindled significantly but it still has a very strong support base that is still very much believing in the message and i think a large part of it is this popular participation in this spectacle of violence um and as far as i'm sitting the sec the the, the opposition hasn't matured yet the brotherhood hasn't really done the revisions that they need to do to be able to move past the mistakes um the secular opposition remains extremely fragmented also no real concrete revisions have uh taken place and until now um the price is being paid for the popular participation in the elimination of any form of opposition in the country there was this logic that just everybody needs to unite and to follow cc at any cost um and that's very hard to reverse and i fear it's a legacy that's going to stay with us for a long time so i don't think that in 10 years will be writing about CC's or the regime's demise, unfortunately. But I think now it might be the beginning of something or a change, uh, but nothing very fast and nothing that will happen in the very short um, uh, uh, term. Well, thanks. Uh, we've been speaking to Magid Bandor about his new book, Egypt Under Assisi, A Nation on the Edge by Ivy Torres Press. Thank you for joining us. Yeah.